Welcome to a special edition of Breaking Badness. In this episode for our Summer Camp 2019 miniseries, we're joined by Jerry Gamblin, Principal Security Engineer at Kenna Security. We sat down to discuss Jerry's Oregon Trail strategy, trends in the personal security space, and the skill shortage. This special episode of Breaking Badness is next. Jerry, thank you so much for being here with us today. No problem. I love this week. It's it's one of the highlights of my year. I look Good. forward to it. Do you, are you going to all of the summer camp activities like Black Hat? B-side, all of them. I started with B-Side yesterday and I speak at uh, DEF CON on Saturday and we'll stick through Sunday. So this is a full seven days in Vegas for me. Oh my. It, it happens. Like... <laughs> I really want to talk to my accountant about getting Nevada residency because in between this and having to come back out for AWS reInvent, uh, it's yep. almost a month a year, it seems like, out in Vegas. So maybe I could get that no state income tax thing going. Going to have to ask you about cool things to do in this area then. You probably have all the tips and tricks. I know where, where to go outside of uh, the strip. And I can tell you what channel PBS is on in the, <laughs> That's awesome. in the room. Yep. That's very important to know. Yeah. Speaking of PBS, um, I noticed in uh, one of your old bios, or maybe it's not an old bio, that what got you into security was hacking the Oregon Trail. Is that correct? Or so one of the things? That, that is one of like my first uh, forays into what you would consider hacking, right? Okay. Like in third grade, and if you got done with your math early, you got to go sit in the back and play Oregon Trail, and you got to get out that big floppy disk, that five and yes. a half inchy floppy, and you put it in, <laughs> and like, my buddy had his name at the top of the list and like I didn't have a lot of time so like I just started looking because you got you were at the command prompt first so you started looking come to find out like it's the worst kind of hacking because it was just a text file with name comma score in it so I cheated and like the terrible criminal I am I gave myself <laughs> like an impossible score to get so like instead of beating my friend by a little bit I got like a billion points or however it it went that is awesome I am from Oregon, so I have a special place in my heart for that that game. Forge a lot of rivers? Like, yes. Yeah. Actually, I think I was probably very terrible at that game. I could have used your help to make myself look better. No, no, you couldn't. <laughs> I could have just helped you cheat. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. So this the nice thing about this show, in my opinion, too, is it's a great opportunity to look back and reflect um, from an industry perspective. So a lot of the questions I have for you are sort of a look back and a look forward and I always like to start in a positive place because there's so much doom and gloom yeah. in the industry. So uh, one of my first questions here is, what is something as an industry we've improved on or changed in the last year? Personal security has really taken a step up, right? Uh, multiple companies are pushing two-factor authentication. Uh, products are now built with personal security in mind. You know, it's... If we look back in 10 years or 15 years, what happened with the email and the Russians are really gonna probably look like a catalyst for personal security moving forward. That's a great silver lining. I yeah. like that. That's always good to hear. And it does seem like security is um, taking the front page, which is not always for happy reasons, but at least it's the, you know, your general consumer now yes. is more educated, which is fantastic. Yeah, they know that they need two-factor authentication on and yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. Cool. Okay. So what, what then on the other side of that question, do you think we need to improve? What should we prioritize? And when we're coming back to talk next year at Black Hat, what do you hope we've accomplished? I think we're kind of switching away from 
technical security, like the old school hack, and it's going to be much more targeted and personal data type hacks. We're going to have very little to do with, right? Like, I, I watched that uh, documentary on Netflix. I don't remember the name. I think it might have been something like The Great Hack, right? Oh, yeah. And it was no hacking. Like, there was no... It was it was data, and that's the where we're going to live, is who has your data, who has access to your data, and what can they do with your data right. is really going to be what security looks like going forward. I think we're advanced enough where... The things that we saw when I were coming up in the industry, like the remote route, the RCEs, they're going to become more and more rare. Mm-hmm. And the breaches and the, and when we talk about hacking, we're going to talk about misuse of personal data more and more. Absolutely. And that's where the money's at too, right? For the threat actors potentially. And I, I don't know about that. That's that, that always is always a question for me because yeah. you, you see these big breaches that steal 600 million records. Right. And they're not monetizing it yet. Mm. So when you have a straight breach, it doesn't feel like there's a giant monetization yet. Like, mm, okay. Because I don't know what you can do. Like when, what was it? Equifax was hacked. I don't know what the secondary market is for 300 million people's credit data. Right. Right. Like, right. Yeah, you don't want somebody to have it, but like, I don't think you can sell that to anybody. So it has to be a state actor or something along that line that would use that data. Right. That's a great point, And that makes a lot of sense. Um, what really, what keeps you up at night? What are you most concerned at about? I'm not, right? Like I, you have to understand your risk at all times. You have to have a, a risk acceptance and understand where your data is and what happens. Like I know like what the worst case scenario is. Yeah. But as a security professional, if you live at, I'm always going to worry about the worst case scenario, nobody will pay attention to you, right? Right. So you have to, you have to understand, like, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. Mm-hmm. But let me walk this back five steps and come up with a reasonable threat model for what's going to happen. And let's talk about that, right? Yeah. Um, I'm giving a talk at the Application Security Village at DEF CON on application threat modeling for for developers because and for professionals in general because I think people really have a hard time with that. It's, you know, here is this application. What's the worst thing that can happen? And they either run all the way to the far side, oh, somebody's going to steal everything, or they have the the answer that's, oh, I don't, nothing can happen, right? So, right. But, as animals, we're all programmed with threat modeling in our DNA. So like, I don't know if you've ever been camping, but you said you're from Oregon. So if I said, how do you protect your, your campsite from bears? You're, even if you've never been in an area with bears, you're gonna know some general things to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, make sure your food's put up. Right. Make, and the problem is we can't switch our brains. We have a hard time getting even hackers and application security professionals. To, to take that same just kind of ingrained threat modeling they have to like not be attacked by bears when they're camping <laughs> and to think about like, how do I not have this application I'm writing be attacked? Right, absolutely. And this is interesting because we've, uh, at this point when we're talking, I've had a few interviews and that has been a common conversation piece, which is work always working back from this worst case scenario and then mitigating the risk yeah. um, proactively, which is really fantastic. And so, Something else I'd love to ask you, 
that's along a slightly different line, so a bit of a segue, but I'm curious with the, the landscape always changing, what those worst case scenarios look like are always changing. How do you stay on top of potential threats to then do go through that process of working back? A lot of reading, a lot of Twitter, a lot of uh, just as much information as you can, a lot of talking. Um, I'm slacked out. I think I'm in like 15 <laughs> Slack groups that oh, people, wow. okay. I mean, it's, you, you have to be able to, to bring in the information and you have to be able to get in front of it enough so that you can take action on it. Absolutely. It's, it's that action window and you normally get 48 hours, uh, 72 hours before an attack starts that you know it's heating up to prepare. And then you probably have a little runway on the backside of a couple of days, right? So there's about a five day sweet spot where if you keep your ear to the ground, you can understand what's coming and, and make proactive moves to protect yourself. Absolutely. Are there, in your specific space, are there any Twitter accounts or blogs or places that you're um, ingesting that reading that you'd recommend? To be honest, Reddit NetSec is okay. probably the best. Like, I have the NetSec slash new up okay. on a tab nearly permanently and just refresh it. And then you just got to, like, understand, oh, here's a company just trying to promote their product. Here looks like a really good right. <laughs> and then, And then Twitter is a really good area like and i can't say this one person always has the best data you just have to kind of understand who is working in the area that you're interested in like if you're interested in containers there are a bunch of people that that i would suggest and i can give you the list so you can put it on the blog or whatever but it's it you have to figure out what you're going to look at and then in, and then there but there's not a catch-all because right. the, the industry is too wide absolutely and it's talked about in pretty much every every piece of the infosec industry right whenever you're trying to protect inter thing here yeah. it's all supposed to be as industry specific as possible or at least relative and relevant to your own ecosystem whatever that might be correct yes so that's that's a great point and so yeah i would love to grab that list from you yep, and we can no throw them in there and we'll be throwing yours in there as well awesome. obviously which is great um and a question another question for you there's a lot of conversation about having folks that have enough, enough technical prowess um, for where the industry is at now. But what what are some things we're missing as an industry when we're talking about the skills gap? When I talk to people about this, it's this is a hot subject for everybody, and I understand, but there are two types of security professionals. There are people like me who started a long time ago, and this is their passion, mm -hmm. and that they're going to give you 60 hours a week, even if you only pay them for 40, right? They're writing code on their weekends, right? Like, right. And everybody wants those people. Mm -hmm. But... Then there's also, for for lack of a better term, what I like to call blue-collar security professionals, right? They want to come in at 8 a.m., give their company till 5 p.m., do the best job they can during those, you know, eight hours of work, and then not work again until Monday, right? And, right. Or Tuesday. Like, that's that's fine. That That is that. But what you can't have is you can't have people say there's a cybersecurity skills gap and want people that are like me or like the other people on our research team who are working at like 10 p.m. at night on a Tuesday, that's not fair of, of anyone to ask an employee that isn't willing to give them that on a regular basis, right? Yeah. So I don't think there's a skills gap as much as there's a funding gap. If you need, if you, need you know, somebody to work a two-time job, stop trying to find people like me and Jonathan Cran and Michael Royman that are on our research team who kind of eat and breathe and live this stuff. And not only is it their job, it's their, 
you know, for yeah. lack of a better term, yeah. it's their hobby. Yeah. Like, double your team, right? Like, if, if you really need somebody to be doing threat intelligence 24 hours a day, hire three shifts, right? right. Like, invest in it. And invest Absolutely. in it, yeah. Because you can find people and teach people to come in and do, do what they do. I'm not a, an amazingly intelligent person. Like, I have a hard time believing that. <laughs> what, what I do can be done by any by by you know most people. Right? Like I can sit down and teach somebody how to do container security. It's not that like I have this secret knowledge. It's just that I'm passionate about it. So I, you know, I spend the time. I spend the weekend. I paying you know my marketing team when they don't want to be paying. Say, hey, I have an idea. I'm going to release this blog, <laughs> and they're like, oh, can we wait? Like, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. it's. It, you can't have you you can't say there's a skills gap and mean that you can't find people who are who aren't willing to work 60 hours a week all the time right right yeah. absolutely another question for you would just be what is some advice you have for younger folks coming into the info security space and application security start a blog yeah period like the amount of smart people I talk to that don't have a blog is is ridiculous you just need a place you know. Even if it's just a GitHub page where you're dropping your code snippets, the amount of code snippets I have from 10, five years ago that just keep people keep finding and coming back to is amazing. But like, hey, if I'm working on a Docker container, I just write, you know, probably a poorly written blog post and, and it's there. It just shows your back work, right? It yeah. gives people the ability to understand that like, here's what this person knows, right? Like, here's what they're looking at, right? Because, yeah. I mean, if you go look at my blog, it's going to be pretty ADHD. It's like Docker containers, automotive hacking, like, oh, he's building a robot now. Now back to <laughs> back to containers, right? Like, I'm scattered, but, like, it's, uh, it's my work product over the last 10 years of my career. And, like, and if people ask, hey, Jerry, what have you worked on? I can say, go to jerrygamblin.com, and you can just scroll back and see everything I've done right absolutely like, yeah that is powerful it must be nice too to look back and see how you've grown and changed as a, a professional and also all the stuff you've done the weirdest thing is when you google something and it goes back to your blog and it's like your answer it's like oh that's that's what I did okay that's so cool yeah that's awesome yeah and your blog is fantastic I had a chance to read it before we had yeah. a conversation so keep it up keep <laughs> up the good work there seems to be these just you know, generic industry buzzwords that come out every year and threat intelligence was hot a few years ago. And mm -hmm. then we've got AI machine learning. What's, what's that new thing you think that's coming in this space? It's still machine learning, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's still people misusing those terms. Um, and then it'll continue to be because it's a buzzword and people want to know, Oh, do you have machine learning built into this? It's like, I have a search bar. Is that machine learning? Right? Like right. it's, it's hard because people think they want that, but they don't know why they want it. Um, yeah. It's kind of like getting the undercoating on your car when you buy a new car. It's like, do you want the undercoating? It's like, I don't know what that is, but yeah, for 900 <laughs> extra bucks, throw that on there, right? Right. Like, in security, it's the same way. Hey, do you want machine learning with this? No, uh, oh, throw it back on there for 10 extra percent on the contract price, right? Like, right. I think that people don't know what it is can't tell you what it is but they they want it because it sounds good absolutely and there i am sure you probably have a few questions off the top of your head that you like to dig into when you're talking to to vendors and technology partners of how to how to understand what machine learning means to them to be honest i go and look at their github page like when i mm -hmm. start evaluating somebody i go and like say hey have they released any code can i see who their who their you know chief data scientist is who's running their shops right it's right 
that, that game seven degrees of Kevin Bacon that's played. Like, the problem with that, like, I think it's like the three degrees of security. Mm. I'm fairly certain that if you tell me a company that me and you can find somebody we know that's working in that company within one mutual acquaintance. Absolutely. Probably, just because it's so small. So yeah. as an insider to the security community, like marketing buzz gets stripped off really fast. And I just always go straight to the source and try to try to get an internal thing. And I, and I suggest people do that, right? Like the amount of times on a Friday or Thursday night, I've seen somebody who's a small shop or whatever, reach out directly to the CEO of a major tech company or the CTO of a major tech company and get, get an answer is amazing, right? Like yeah. it's not that hard to say, Hey, who's the CTO of, you know, Kenna security. Let me ping him and ask him a question directly. And you might get an answer 95% of the time. Yeah. That's a great tip. And absolutely having that transparency too, like you're talking about going to the GitHub page and being yeah. able to see what that actually consists of is sort of nice. Skip the, Skip the middleman there of yeah. having to read between the lines. See, see if they're living what they're selling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Another question I have for you is around open source tools. If there are any open source tools that you use personally that you recommend to other folks. I'm a, I've been doing a lot of container research and I launched vulnerablecontainers.org that, that uh, scans the top 1,000 containers and shows you all the open vulnerabilities in there. And that's, that's awesome. built out of a product called Trivi. Okay. Um, it's a Go developer from Japan who's... Uh, wrote an open source, probably one of the best container security tools I've seen personally. And it's it's a, it's something I would pay for. It's a commercial grade product that he is actively giving away for free. And I try to try to push people to that as much as I can. Yes, and we'll have to include that in our blog as well. We'll yep. make sure that they get credit for that. That's nice. awesome. It's really cool to see the open source community and how engaged people are and just sort of that uh, genuine hope that we can all improve the industry together. It's, it's really a cool. find a passion and live your passion. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, so a question just pivoting back to sort of the summer camp questions. What what seems different this year than other years, in your opinion? Are you seeing any major changes in the show? In the uh, This will get a little bit uh, technical, maybe. Um, there are less vulnerabilities released here because the market has changed. If you find a vulnerability now, you, you either sell it for, you know, a large amount of money to ZDI or to someone, mm -hmm. and then you, you don't talk about it here at the show, right? Or you have to, to do responsible disclosure and lining up responsible disclosure to make an impact at a show like this is nearly impossible because you, you, there's so many things out of your control. If I found a bug in X product and I wanted to talk about it at RSA, uh, it wouldn't be relevant by the time that it came around because the RSA uh, call for papers closes, I think, Friday or something, right? Right. So I would have to have a bug already, have it submitted to the company I found the bug at, and have, you know, so that they could start working on it. Right. And then give that talk in six months in San Francisco, where by the time the bug's either super old or they've already patched it, mm -hmm. or it's the the culture has changed around bugs. You either sell them or you fix them right away. So the days of having somebody stand on stage and jackpotting an ATM machine is probably over. Yeah. How do you feel about that? It's it's the maturing of the industry, right? Yeah. Like I just sat at the Cult of the Dead Cows lunch with Cisco and and it was amazing. Like and those guys were those guys were talking about, it, right? They're like we were kids in the late 80s, early 90s and 
nobody knew and they've all matured, right? And you go and look at what all these people are doing now right. and they all have different jobs. It's, we always have to look forward and say, how are we gonna make the industry better going forward? Like, Absolutely. I don't look back and say, man, I really wish this was 20 years ago where I could get up here and drop a Microsoft zero day and like have some people clap, right? Like, right. Because it's also changed in who it affects. You know, in the 90s and early 2000s, if you released a bug, there weren't a ton of people that were gonna be affected right away or be able to weaponize it. If I go drop an iOS bug at DEF CON on Saturday, and it's weaponized and I give you a link say, oh, here's my GitHub page with POC. You know, it could be used all over the world for things that you may never have intended that bug to be used for, right? Yeah. By regimes you don't want to have your bug, by, you know, people are gonna do bad things with it. So what bugs can be used for has changed dramatically too. Absolutely. Yes, well said. Um, and I, I'd love to end our interview on another positive note just as we began and I think security, and I'd be curious to see if you agree with this, is it can be a thankless job. A lot of people are in, you know, in the trenches doing hard work to protect um, organizations' IP, consumer data all the time, and they're not necessarily always getting any recognition for that. So I'm wondering personally if there's someone that you look up to in the security industry. Uh, Doug Sun from, from uh, Duo. Like, there are, there are people who have positive attitude. Ed Bellis, who's my CTO, like, he kind of really is a mentor to me. And he's kind of really like, both of those guys have really changed the way I look at security, right? Like it's easy to think it's thankless, but it's also easy to become a jerk in security and not realize it. Right. Um, I don't know how many times in my career personally that I've went and dropped a bug on somebody and didn't care about their workload or what was supposed to be released. like. Well, I just wasn't smart, right? Like 10 years ago, it was like, hey, I found this bug. It needs to be fixed. And they're like, well, you're going to blow up this sprint and we're not going to be able to release it. I don't care. I have a security bug. I'm the security guy. You have to do what I say, right? Like, and Ed and, and some of these guys have kind of like helped me understand that to be effective in security, you have to be a team. In, in, in a company as a security professional, you have to be a team player. And being a team player sometimes means not right now. Like, my stuff's mm -hmm. important, but it's not the most important. And, you know, we need to ship a new product that we promise these people, or we have a contractual obligation to get this done. Like, we want this fixed, and like, let me help you put it in a list and understand when it's gonna come up. Right. But way too many security people who, who trout out the thankless line, if you go back and ask them about their communication style, really lacks empathy and mm -hmm. really lacks like any understanding or, or really even any care about what the rest of the organization is trying to accomplish. They feel they, they it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? They want to feel like they're the, for laugh or an unpolitically correct term, the redhead stepchild of the organization, mm -hmm. but they act like that too, right? Like they don't try to get involved. They don't try to understand what's happening in their organizations. And like, I mentor some people and when I do one of the first questions I ask them is, can you tell me exactly how your company makes money? Like, mm. not like in the, in like, oh, we sell this product. Like, oh no, like explain to me your business model. Explain to me. And, right. and the number of security people I talk to that can't give you an overview of how their product works, how they sell it, who their customers are, who's using it, why, are amazing. So they're not part of the organization. They are a bolt-on, right? Like those, those security right. people are bolt-ons and you're never going to get traction like that. 
when you sit down with somebody and say, hey, can you explain to me, you know, what the business model of your company is, who your biggest customers are, you know, what's on the roadmap for the next three months. Right. And, and the security person can sit down and tell you in, you know, not in super details, but like enough so that you're like, oh yeah, this person cares about, about his job. And he like calls into that, that forecasting meeting on Tuesdays, right? Right, like, right. Versus versus just, you know, being in the lab with the hoodie on and then be like, oh, found something. Let me throw this over the fence. Right. Like, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a great answer. And um, another pattern that we've seen pop up in the podcast, too, is sort of this the business side of security that's becoming more prevalent and, and more important to have in that conversation. And I used this metaphor earlier, so um, probably hear that again, but just getting out of the mosh pit back up into the balcony. Right. And being able to yeah. see that high level view of what's happening and how it impacts your business. Understanding compliance and and using compliance to make security better. Yeah. Uh, GDPR, if you're a global company, the California Data Protection Act is coming online. Like, and security people need to understand how to use those compliance laws as a driver in their organization mm -hmm. to to help get things better. And by better, I don't mean like use those as hammers because I see a lot of people do this. Right. But like, if it says we have to do something and we're not doing something. We now have have a reason to get there, right? And you can say, hey, yeah, I understand, but we can't store emails forever. Like I know it's the marketing people want to do it because it's great to have, right. but we have to keep them for you know six months because this regulation says it's understanding the tools and understanding the business as a whole that makes people successful in security. Absolutely, and I think that's a great note to end on. That's fantastic um, insight. And so, Jerry, I just want to thank you for your time today, and good luck on your talk. I'll be excited to. Hopefully grab a recording or something of that. Yep, no problem. Thank you very, very much. Have a great day. Same to you. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at blog.domaintools.com. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. That's it for this week. We'll see you again next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.